0: All right. It is time for some late August into September birthday shout outs. I want to say happy birthday to Dee, Russ, Krista, Sarah, Samuel, Liz, Gabrielle, Cassandra, and Luann. I hope you're taking this time to celebrate yourself, what has occurred in your life. Be grateful you're here and look to the future for all the amazing things that are coming up for you. So happy birthday. A mother was carjacked and murdered with her little boys in the car, but the carjacking wasn't the motive. It turned out she had discovered somebody's secret. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Lines. Welcome to Crimelines. This case for today was suggested by apparently me because I don't have a name written next to it on my spreadsheet. If you do have a suggestion you want to get on my growing list of suggestions, the best way is to email me at crimelinespodcast at gmail.com. If you are on Patreon, you can also message me there. I do try to grab as many of the suggestions as I can on social media, but sometimes I do miss them because they're coming in from various places, and I'll be honest, my life as an organized person is just a thin facade. It is a role I play on the internet. It's just easier for me if they're all in one place, and then when I do have the spreadsheet open and I remember to transfer all the ideas over, I can just go grab them. Again, that email is crimelinespodcast at gmail.com. That is really just the best way to get in touch with me. And also don't forget, I have a YouTube channel where occasionally new videos go up. Now that the school year started, I should be getting back into the swing of things with videos and live streams. It was difficult during the summer because I was wanting to do things with my kids. But since they are in school right now, I have more time. So those will be coming back. So, okay, let's get started on this week's episode. We are going to start with Sarah Ambrosco, who was raised the middle of seven girls in a boisterous and tight knit family. Her father was a surgeon and they lived an almost idyllic life just outside of Buffalo, New York. Sarah eventually moved to Florida with her family when her father took a job as the Manatee County health director and later the associate medical examiner for the state of Florida. Sarah became a teacher, but after she met an Atlanta-based health club owner in 1981, she moved to Atlanta with him. She switched from teaching reading and math to children to teaching fitness classes for adults. Sarah's marriage eventually ended in divorce, and she moved into a condo with one of her sisters in a suburb of Atlanta. She took a job as a nightclub promoter, working in their marketing department at one of the trendiest clubs in the area. This is a place where Frederick Tokars, a local assistant district attorney, liked to go. But Sarah hadn't noticed him at the club. She did notice him when he was interviewed on television about a murder trial he was assisting. Sarah not just noticed Fred, but she recognized him. He had also grown up outside of Buffalo, New York, and the two had gone to school together. Fred actually followed a pretty similar path as Sarah. He ended up in Florida for law school, and then he moved to Atlanta after he got a job with the district attorney's office. This was someone familiar in a relatively new city, so Sarah decided to give him a call. They made plans to meet so that they could catch up on life after high school, and that meeting led to another, and soon enough, the two were dating. Sarah really liked how much she and Fred had in common. They were from the same area, their fathers were doctors, they came from traditional families, and they were both ambitious and goal-oriented. Fred's goals were mostly focused on his law career, while Sarah wanted to build a family like she grew up in. And they were both 31 years old when they reconnected, so it was the perfect time for them to do both things, grow a career and a family. A year into their relationship, the two married in a simple ceremony with a judge, and months after the wedding, Sarah was pregnant with their first son, Ricky. Though Sarah worked through the pregnancy, she told Fred she really wanted to be a stay-at-home mom after the baby was born, but Fred would not have it. He insisted they needed to be a two-income family, particularly because, according to Fred, Sarah had brought debt into the marriage and they had recently bought a nice home in an affluent neighborhood, They just weren't in a position to be a single-income family, in Fred's view. In Sarah's view, it could be worked out, but she said okay. Sarah decided she would stay on at her job, since Fred was so vehemently against her not working, and she worked it out so she was in the office in the mornings, and then she worked from home in the afternoon, which she tried to do while she was also caring for a baby. Every parent who has ever done that knows how hard it is. Eventually, though, Sarah ended up losing her job, not through any fault of her own or because she couldn't handle the workload while taking care of her baby. She was laid off as the club she worked for started to go under. While she could have looked for another job, and she probably did for a little bit, There was even more upheaval in their lives when Fred decided to leave the DA's office. He wanted to go into private practice. He was primarily a defense attorney, though he would take tax cases and handle divorces because, frankly, the money was better and more steady with those cases. And the tax cases were really what Fred was looking to get into more. Sarah was not a huge fan of this. She didn't like the idea of her husband being a criminal defense attorney because it meant some of his clients really weren't great people. She felt that it may be unsafe. On the other hand, starting this private practice meant that Fred had to work even longer hours than before, so it actually started to make more sense for Sarah to stay home and not go out and get another job. It was almost impossible for both of them to work demanding jobs and keep everything afloat at home. Plus, Fred's goal wasn't to be a criminal defense attorney forever. He wanted to work more in the business and tax law, working with wealthy clients. And if that springboarded him into a political career, all the better. And having his beautiful outgoing wife With business connections from her time in marketing, that helped him along, particularly when she also kept the household running well so he didn't have divided focus. So Fred focused on his career, and that came at the price of his relationship with Sarah. Even early on in their marriage, during the so-called honeymoon period, Fred was working long hours, and he regularly didn't make it home in time for dinner. That only got worse when he went into private practice and all these business deals and then traveling out of town on top of that. Sarah made mention of this to friends and family, but she seemed okay with it at first. But Sarah kept a lot of the dynamic between her and Fred behind closed doors, particularly money issues. Fred decided that if he made the money, he also controlled it. According to him, he was better at budgeting than Sarah was, so it made sense that he kept them on this budget. And a budget is one thing, but Fred used this budget as a means of control, and he's not the first person to use, I'm better at budgeting, as a justification for financial abuse. So Sarah was given an allowance and anything she wanted outside of her allowance amount, including things regarding house repairs or car repairs or furniture purchases, she would have to ask for the money for it. And it wasn't a come together and discuss and figure out how to make these purchases work. She was asking for permission. And if Fred wasn't home, whether because he was traveling or he was just at work, Sarah had to do without. This was a complete control over their finances. And I'm pretty sure Sarah's family started noticing this because the permission extended to Sarah visiting her family in Florida. Sarah would talk to her family about going down there with the baby, but then would have to back out if Fred refused to give her the gas money. And the times Fred would let her go were often when he was willing to go as well. Except, get this, I literally reread this bit a couple times because I thought, surely not. Surely I'm misunderstanding. Fred would give Sarah the gas money so she and the baby could drive nine hours to her parents' house in Florida. Fred, however, would get himself a plane ticket and have Sarah pick him up at the airport down in Florida. So Fred didn't have gas money for Sarah to go visit her family, except the times he also happened to have enough for him to get a plane ticket. This was their dynamic with money. Eventually, Sarah did open up a little bit here, a little bit there about her marriage to Fred. She would tell her sister some things, she would tell friends some things, and they were starting to put the bigger picture together. Things like how Sarah ended up having to get a credit card behind Fred's back just to cover the things he'd refuse to pay for or to pay for things that were urgent when Fred wasn't around with the hopes he would give her the money for it later. But obviously those bills would come due and her allowance wasn't always enough to cover much more than the bare minimum of the payment. The financial abuse was happening, and with it verbal abuse, as Fred would put Sarah down regularly about how terrible she was with money, about how her values are wrong, and there is reason to believe that things got physical as well, according to one witness. One night, about two years into the marriage, Fred and Sarah were supposed to attend a party. At the last minute, Sarah called and said they actually couldn't come because she wasn't feeling well. The friend said he was sorry to hear that, and Sarah confided that she actually couldn't come because she had bruises that Fred had left on her. She begged the friend never to mention it to anyone, especially Fred. That is the only statement we have indicating possible physical abuse. In 1988, the couple had a second son named Michael. I generally do not name minor children unless, as adults, they have named themselves in the media, and Michael actually wrote a very moving piece about his family, which is why I have used his and his brother's names. When Michael was four months old, Sarah wrote out a will. While she had written it herself and not with a lawyer, she did have witnesses to it, and she had it notarized, so she was sure it was official. She essentially disinherited her husband. She said that everything was to be put into a trust for her boys, and she named one of her sisters as the trustee. The only mention of Fred in the will is in passing, saying which of her sisters she wanted to have custody of the boys should her husband die either at the same time or before her. That is the only mention of Fred in the will. It was around this time that Sarah started seriously contemplating divorce. In addition to the abuse, she believed Fred was cheating on her, which he was, and she consulted with an attorney. Sarah's sole concern with moving forward with a divorce was custody of her children. The main reason she was concerned was that Fred was an attorney. He had high-profile divorce attorney friends. He was friends with the judges in their area. He eventually became a part-time judge himself. He told Sarah, flat out, that he would use all of these connections to take custody away from her. And Sarah would rather be in an unhappy marriage with her boys than to be divorced without them. So Sarah stayed through the late 1980s and into the 1990s, but eventually she became confident that she could leave Fred and make sure she was the custodial parent. Sarah became convinced that Fred was committing some type of illegal business dealings with some of these less-than-savory characters he had in his orbit. Sarah hired a private investigator to look into it, and then she did something Fred told her to never do. She went to the basement of their home, and she looked in his safe. Fred had barred her from going into the family's basement entirely, let alone the safe, But she realized the only way to get the evidence she felt she needed was to break this rule. The first thing Sarah found down there were large sums of cash. And then she found papers that indicated offshore bank accounts and businesses set up in other countries, possibly shell businesses. It was in the fall of 1992 that Sarah told a friend, she found evidence that Fred had engaged in tax evasion. So holding this over him, she believed she could then get custody of the boys. Sarah took her information to her divorce attorney and he told her what any good attorney would have told her. There are no guarantees in family court. And hearing this, Sarah again hesitated about filing for divorce. That's not to say she wouldn't have filed for divorce soon or taken the chance because she did have good information against Fred, but she had to think about it. Like I said, unhappy marriage with her boys is better than being divorced without them. They were her everything. Things may have worked out for her eventually, though, as far as proving Fred was engaged in illegal business dealings. Around the same time Sarah had found that proof of tax evasion, Fred had a business client who the feds were investigating for drug running. Fred was initially not seen as being directly involved in that aspect of things, but he was eventually investigated as well. But it seems they were both unaware of this broad investigation at Thanksgiving time 1992. On November 24th, which was two days before the holiday, Sarah drove to her parents' house in Florida. On the way, she did what she usually did, and she stopped at the airport in Tampa to pick Fred up. That's right, he had his wife drive alone with a four-year-old and a six-year-old while he flew and then had her pick him up at the airport. This guy seriously gives me a headache. Okay, so anyway... They spent the weekend in Florida for the holiday, and while they were away, their house alarm went off twice, and it was specifically the fire aspect of the alarm. But both times, there was no fire, no smoke, nothing. So they told the security company to go ahead and disconnect the system until they got back into town, and then they could deal with whatever the malfunction was. On Saturday, November 28th, Fred flew back to Atlanta. Sarah and the boys were staying an extra night, and they left around a quarter to one on Sunday afternoon. Shortly after Sarah left, Fred called down to her father's house, and he was curious what time he could expect Sarah to make it home. Her father said it would be probably around 9.30 or 10 and it was a little before 10 p.m. when Sarah and the boys returned home. Sarah pulled their Toyota 4Runner into the garage and started to get out of the vehicle with her son, Ricky. Little four-year-old Michael was asleep in the back seat. While in the garage, a man with a gun rushed Sarah and forced her back into the driver's seat while Ricky was next to her in the front seat the man got into the back seat next to Michael. He held the gun to Sarah as he ordered her to drive. When they were about a half a mile from the house, the car veered down into a field. The man with the gun leapt from the car and ran off, leaving Sarah and her boys behind. The boys were physically unharmed other than one of them bumping his head. Six-year-old Ricky reached over and turned the key to turn the car off. Then he got his brother out of the back seat and ran to a nearby house. Ricky told the people at the house that a man had shot their mother and they needed these people to call his grandfather, meaning Sarah's father, because he was a doctor and he could help her. The people at the house saw blood on Ricky, though it was not his blood, it was Sarah's. While some people stayed with the boys up at the house and called 911, two ran to the car to see if they could help Sarah. When they opened the driver's side door, she slumped out. It was too late. Sarah died from a single gunshot wound to the head, fired at close range. The police arrived at the scene and interviewed two terrified and traumatized children. Michael had woken up shortly before his mother was shot, but Ricky had witnessed everything from when they pulled into the garage until they showed up at that neighbor's house, and he told the police what had happened. Ricky said he had never seen the man before he approached them with the gun and forced them into the car. As Sarah drove away from the house, Ricky said the man told Sarah to turn right and she refused. Instead, she screamed. She pushed Ricky to the floor of the car and jerked the wheel to the left. That's when the man fired the gun and they crashed into the field. Ricky had not seen where the man went after that. And his description of the man was rather vague black, slender, wearing a green beanie style hat and a brown coat. It appeared that Sarah had tried to throw the gunman off balance when she jerked the steering wheel. She had pushed Ricky to the floor so he wouldn't get thrown around. She was trying to give herself and her sons a chance to get away. But unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way for her. As all of this was happening, Sarah's family was calling her house. Normally, she would call when she got home from one of these long drives so that they knew she got there safely, but this night she didn't call. But when they called her, it's not like it rang through or an answering machine picked up. They got a busy signal. Even though Sarah had never made it into the house that night, Someone had taken the phone off the hook. So, this idea that Sarah was ambushed by someone waiting outside the garage seemed less likely. It seems that this person had been in the house to take the phone off the hook. And knowing this man was likely in the house proved that this was not a robbery or a carjacking. He was in the house. He took the phone off the hook, but he didn't take anything with him. Didn't even ransack the place looking for something to take. He had been there in the house waiting for Sarah, and possibly for a while. Earlier in the day a neighbor noticed there was a car in the garage, one that they had never seen before, and someone else saw a van in front of the house. With this looking like a targeted attack, the investigators had to consider if Fred's job played a role. He worked for the DA. He helped put people in prison. In private practice, he dealt with some unsavory characters. He worked with and against people who were dealing with contentious cases, He once had an extortion case involving a sheriff. He handled high-profile divorces. And this was actually why the family installed the alarm in the first place. Sarah wanted it because she was worried for the family's safety. If Sarah was concerned for her safety enough to get an alarm system installed, it was something that had to be looked into. Of course, the family just so happened to have the alarm disabled, right before the murder. But the investigation soon had another angle when the day after the murder, a cousin of Sarah's showed up at the police department with several papers. Sarah told her that if anything happened to her, she was to bring those papers to the police. They were the evidence Sarah had about the offshore banking and businesses that she believed were proof of tax evasion. This was yet another expression of concern. Sarah did not feel unsafe enough that she had to bring the papers to the police before her murder, but she was concerned enough that she gave them to someone, just in case something did happen to her. Fred Tokars was going to be on the police radar as the husband no matter what, but this placed him even more prominently on the list. But Fred's business partners and the various businesses he was dealing in would also have a motive because a lot of these accounts had to do with them as well. Whether they were looking at Fred or one of his business associates would be a matter for the investigation to determine. And we're just going to skip ahead a bit and say the investigation pointed not at Fred or a business partner, but rather Fred and a business partner. On the Fred side of things, Sarah's family told the police about how Sarah wanted to divorce him, but was too intimidated. And Fred was acting strangely after the murder. He was anxious and expressed that he was scared, which is fair enough. His wife and children had been kidnapped from their home, and his wife had been killed. And that killer was still out there. If this was a hit directed at him, he was still in danger. But if Fred was scared of a killer, he should also be eager to get that guy caught. Instead, Fred made a comment about not wanting to work with the police because he didn't want them nosing around in his business files. So was Fred afraid of a killer, or was he afraid of the investigation? The investigators knew they wanted to look more into Fred. They knew he wasn't the shooter. The boys would have recognized their father. But that didn't mean he didn't arrange it. And strangely, it was actually Fred's alibi for the time of the murder that raised eyebrows. He said he was in Alabama seeing a client of his named Wilbert who was incarcerated. This was easy enough to check with the prison system, and it was true. Fred had an attorney client meeting with Wilbert on Sunday, and he stayed until Monday. Wilbert told the police that this was not a scheduled visit. He actually didn't even know Fred was coming. When he tried to get Fred to talk about his case a bit, Fred was short with him. He wasn't interested in discussing anything, and he told Wilbert he was just there to get Wilbert to sign some papers. In all, the meeting lasted about 10 minutes, and it involved nothing that couldn't have waited until after the holiday weekend was over. Fred Tokars supposedly had a reason to be in another state at the time his wife was murdered, but based on Wilbert's perception of their interaction, it was a very thin reason, and If Fred was out of town, why did he call his father in law to confirm what time Sarah was going to get home? That wasn't information he needed to know the precise time on, yet he called asking for it. The alibi was beginning to look manufactured. So the police had a lot of questions for Fred, as you can imagine. And though he was hesitant, to cooperate with the police initially, according to some statements from other people. He did sit down for a full interview with the police a week after the murder, and he had his attorney present. Fred didn't give up much. He admitted he knew Sarah was contemplating divorce, but he talked about some of the serious legal trouble some of his clients had gotten into, including violent crimes he named a few names of people who might have a grudge or a motive. But it's not who Fred named that's interesting here, it's who he didn't name. He had left out a man named Eddie Lawrence, who was both a client but also a business partner. And Eddie owed Fred a lot of money, around $70,000. And, Phone record showed that Fred and Eddie were in contact the day before the murder. Eddie had been accused of passing bad checks, and that was a good reason to arrest him and bring him in for questioning. On December 12, 1992, Eddie was asked directly if he knew anything about Sarah's murder, and he said he did not. He was asked about the phone call between him and Fred the day before the killing, And Eddie said Fred called because his hot water heater wasn't working, and he just wanted Eddie to come by and fix it, but Eddie said he couldn't, and he had not been to the house. Eddie didn't offer anything useful. The police went back to Fred and asked why he hadn't mentioned Eddie. Fred said he hadn't mentioned Eddie by name, but he had mentioned the businesses they were partners in. Their names were all over the paperwork together, and that would have been easy enough to find through public records. So while Fred Hanna explicitly named Eddie, he was insisting that he hadn't exactly hidden him either. The omission wasn't purposeful, but the police were not so sure about this. It was around the same time that a man went to them claiming that Eddie Lawrence had offered him. to kill someone. This man turned him down. However, his girlfriend's brother, Curtis Rower, did not turn it down. He took the job, and this man believed the target was Sarah Tokars. With this witness statement as a big piece of evidence, on December 23rd, 1992, the police arrested Curtis Rower and Eddie Lawrence on suspicion of murder. They found Curtis hiding under a bed at a family member's house when they went to arrest him. The investigators called Fred to let him know that an arrest had been made and gave him the names of the two men arrested. Fred and the boys were in Florida at the time, staying with Sarah's family for the Christmas holiday. Sarah's father noticed that Fred had no emotional reaction to this news, a stark contrast from everyone else in the family. The officer who called Fred and told him two people had been arrested for Sarah's murder said that all Fred said in response was okay. Sarah's family asked Fred more about the two men arrested, and Fred said he couldn't say anything about Curtis Rower because he didn't know him. But he said he couldn't imagine Eddie Lawrence was involved in any way. He just wouldn't have done that. As the conversation went on, Fred said multiple times that he thought the police were going to use Eddie and Curtis to make some type of deal to get testimony against him. That does seem like an odd thing for an innocent person to jump to. We hear it time and time again in wrongful conviction cases that the innocent person felt so confident right up until the verdict that they couldn't possibly get railroaded. Fred hadn't even been arrested, and he was already convinced he was being set up. He had actually been complaining for the month since Sarah's murder that the police suspected him and that the media was portraying him in a negative light, and he had an overall, I don't know, paranoia about the case. But there's that saying, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't after you. Because it turns out, Fred did have reason to be worried. Twelve hours after the arrests, 22-year-old Curtis confessed to being the gunman, and he implicated both Eddie and Fred in the planning of the murder, though he could not directly tie Fred to it. Curtis, in his confession, wanted to make it clear from the start that he didn't actually mean to kill Sarah, or at least he didn't when the gun had gone off. But that doesn't matter for much since he had, in fact, killed her, and it wasn't his first attempt. According to Curtis, Eddie Lawrence had offered him $5,000 to kill Sarah. Curtis was told that she was Eddie's ex-wife or Eddie's attorney's ex-wife. He has told the story both ways. But he knew Sarah was standing in the way of a lot of money, and that was the motive. The first attempt to kill Sarah occurred a little before Thanksgiving. Curtis said he and Eddie entered the house in the overnight hours while Fred was not home. Eddie told Curtis that Sarah would be asleep in the same bedroom as the boys, but that they were to leave the boys unharmed. Eddie also said that the house alarm had already been turned off. The two opened a sliding glass door that was unlocked, because in addition to knowing the alarm was off, Eddie also knew exactly which door was accessible. As soon as the two went into the house, the family's dog started barking very loudly, and then someone flipped on a light. Realizing that they weren't going to catch Sarah asleep and off guard, they took off. After that plan failed, they came up with a new one. Sarah was going out of town for the weekend, and they were told what time she and the children would be arriving home on Sunday. Curtis knew that the alarm would be off and that Fred would not be home. So Eddie picked Curtis up around 7 p.m. Curtis was the one who brought the sawed-off shotgun, and Eddie dropped him off at the Tokars' house around 8 p.m. While Curtis waited, he wondered where Eddie had gone off to. It turned out that Eddie had just driven to another neighborhood, so he wouldn't be spotted in the getaway vehicle too close to the crime scene. But Curtis didn't know that as time kept passing. He also hadn't been paid yet, so he was alone to kill a woman for $5,000, and he started to realize he had no guarantees, for all he knew, Eddie had abandoned him there. So when Sarah arrived, instead of shooting her on the spot, Curtis carjacked her, thinking he had been set up. He told her to drive while he figured out what to do. Curtisetti first thought to have Sarah drop him off somewhere he was more familiar with in Atlanta, but Sarah didn't know how to get to that place that he was screaming at her to go to. They were only in the car for about a minute when he told her to turn right. We know Sarah did not do that. Ricky had said that when interviewed by the police, and now we have a clue as to why she didn't comply the turn was down a dark, dead-end road. Being just half a mile from home, Sarah was familiar with it, and she wasn't about to go to a more isolated location with her children and a man with a gun. Sarah very likely believed this was a carjacking or a robbery, not a hit on her. She had to have been thinking about her little boys when she decided she was just not going to follow this man's directions. She couldn't have known that Curtis had explicit instructions not to hurt the children and that Sarah was his only target. Curtis's story at this point veers from what Ricky said happened, and it veers in a way that minimizes Curtis's role in what came next. Therefore, we can safely assume this is just BS. But he said that Sarah, instead of turning right, pulled over and tried to give Curtis her purse. She even told him that she and the kids would get out and he could have the car. That's when Eddie approached the side of the car, and Sarah was visibly surprised to see him there. According to Curtis, Eddie then grabbed the shotgun that Curtis was holding, and that's when it went off. Because the car was still in gear, when Sarah slumped over, her foot came off the brake and the car rolled down into the field. Curtis and Eddie then ran to their getaway car and drove back to Atlanta, where Curtis went and bought some drugs. In another version of what happened, according to Curtis Rower, one that matches Ricky's story a little bit more, Curtis said that Sarah saw Eddie by the side of the road. At that point, she put two and two together when she saw him and must have known it was a targeted attack. Sarah, at that point, screamed, accelerated, and took the sharp left turn into the field, according to Curtis, possibly trying to run Eddie over. And that is when the gun went off. Both of these versions of Curtis's story make the gun going off somehow not his fault. Either Eddie did it, Or he did it, but it was an accident because he was thrown around when Sarah turned the wheel suddenly. Important to note that Ricky did not report seeing a second man that night at all. But Curtis put himself and Eddie at the murder scene, and so now they are both behind bars, as Sarah's family is in Florida trying to somehow celebrate this holiday with Fred and the kids. On Christmas Eve, the day after the arrests, the family continued with their plans to go to Busch Gardens Theme Park, which is in Tampa, because they were really just trying to keep things as upbeat for the kids as possible after this enormous trauma. Fred told them that he couldn't go with them. He had some last-minute work he just needed to get done. So while the family took the boys out to have fun— Fred went to a hotel a few miles away and checked in. Hours later, the family tried to reach him, and they couldn't. They were immediately concerned because Fred had said that he was dealing with chest pains earlier that day. Something initially chalked up to anxiety. But now he's not answering the phone, and perhaps it was a medical emergency. So Sarah's father and sister went to the hotel to check on him. When he didn't answer the door, they had the manager unlock it, but the door caught on the chain lock, which prevented them from entering, so they called 911. Fred was found bordering on unconsciousness after an intentional overdose of pain medication and alcohol. He was transported to the hospital and treated. Found with him in that room was a note. In it, Fred denied being involved in hurting Sarah and even pointed out that he took and passed a polygraph. He said he just couldn't live with the pressure that was on him anymore, and he expressed some hints of guilt, but it was more about how him working with Eddie Fisher brought Eddie Fisher into their lives. Not that he was directly involved in Sarah's murder. He denied that. Fred did recover, and through his attorney, he continued to deny involvement. His attorney said that Curtis's confession just could not be trusted because Curtis was mentally ill, and he was a chronic drug user, and he pieced together whatever story he told based on newspaper articles. Curtis was being led by the nose with that interrogation, and he only implicated Fred in the murder because he knew That's what the police wanted to hear. Fred and his attorney requested that everyone, especially the media, just leave Fred and his children in peace. And in an attempt to create some peace for the boys, they were left in Florida to stay with Sarah's family. The media interest in the case down there was much, much less than it was in Atlanta. And then as 1993 started, Fred made changes so he could also leave town. He sold everything that wasn't nailed down, and then he sold everything that was nailed down, like the house and his law practice. Whatever he couldn't sell just got thrown in a dumpster. He then moved in with his mother in West Palm Beach, Florida, though he left the boys in the care of Sarah's family. Fred said that this move was proof that the death of Sarah had cost him everything, and losing everything proved he had no motive. And though the police did have Curtis's confession, they were stuck here. Curtis never spoke to Fred. Fred never offered to give him money, never told him to kill Sarah. Curtis didn't even seem to be 100% sure who Sarah was married to, Eddie or Fred. He just knows that he killed Sarah because Fred told Eddie to tell him to. That's not evidence, not in a court of law. So Fred remained free until Eddie Lawrence confessed. He was the link between Curtis and Fred, and he was ready to fill in some gaps in the investigator's understanding of the case. But he wouldn't fill in those gaps without some sort of arrangement, which we'll get to later. Let's cover the confession. Eddie told the authorities that Fred first approached him about killing someone in the summer of 1992, but it wasn't until the fall that he mentioned it was his wife, Sarah. Fred knew the divorce was coming, and he saw their marital income and property as his. He couldn't stand the thought of giving Sarah half after he did all the work, and all Sarah did was spend his money. Eddie said that he told Fred, just let her have it, because Fred was always going to be making more money in his career as his businesses were growing. But Fred insisted that he would kill her before giving her what was his. And this here is a big reason why I wanted to cover this case, even though I think it is a pretty well-covered one, and one where you all knew where we were headed from the start? It's this. Non-physically violent forms of abuse are often seen as not that serious. Financial abuse makes it hard to leave a marriage, but is it really that big of a deal? And the answer, as we see here, is clearly yes. Yes, it is. It's a form of coercive control. And what do we see when abusers lose that control? We see stalking, we see violence, and we too often see it ending in homicide. When we see red flags of abuse in a relationship, like controlling the finances in the way Fred did, those are points of intervention. We don't have to wait for our friend to get hit to intervene. Red flags in relationships mark intervention points. I'm going to leave numbers and websites for intimate partner violence information and help in the description box. Back to the case. We actually don't have a ton of evidence here that Fred knew Sarah knew about his illegal business deals. According to Eddie, the motive was money. And according to Curtis, Eddie told him the motive was money. Fred's coercive control, as evidenced through financial abuse, was the precursor to Sarah's murder. And according to Eddie, he tried to deter Fred from this plan to kill Sarah multiple times. He said he even asked, what about your kids? And Fred said, they were young and they would get over it. Eddie was not successful in persuading Fred away from killing Sarah, but Fred somehow persuaded Eddie into helping kill sarah and that somehow means he paid him money and this is the first sign of how long fred may have been considering killing sarah the first time she went to speak to a divorce attorney was 1989 and you want to know what else happened in 1989 fred increased sarah's life insurance from 250,000 to 1.75 million dollars but the two reconciled, and Sarah did not file for divorce. Though reconcile is probably the wrong word to use here. It's more like Fred bullied her into staying by threatening to use his connections to get custody of the kids, yet another form of control. And then here we are, three years later, when Sarah was talking to a divorce attorney again in 1992, Fred started making actual plans to kill her. According to Eddie, Fred offered him $25,000 and a portion of the life insurance policy if he would arrange the hit, and Eddie eventually said yes. Initially, Fred thought he could get away with the murder through a cover-up. He had enough influence in Atlanta in his mind that they could stall the investigation or steer it away from him so having Sarah killed at their home in another town wouldn't work. He wanted her killed in Atlanta and his office he thought would be a good place to do it. Eddie told him that was a ridiculous plan, which, in all fairness, it was. Fred Tokars had a bit of an inflated view of how others saw him. He was side-eyed by his colleagues in Atlanta They would hear him brag about being an expert in things he had no experience in. They'd listen to his fast talk and were suspicious of how far he would go to fulfill his ambitions. Fred didn't necessarily have the pull he thought he did. And maybe Eddie knew this through his own business contacts. Or maybe he just thought it was too much of a risk the two settled on the good old staged burglary gone wrong at the house. You know, the same plan we've seen put many people in prison because they miss some important detail, like actually stealing stuff. I mean, if you're going to stage a robbery, you got to rob something. It's really not that hard. So even after all this planning, Eddie still balked at the idea of actually killing someone, Fred started pushing him more and more, according to Eddie, and he felt pressured when Fred finally just was threatening him, threatening to ruin him financially if he didn't help. From the time Fred asked Eddie to kill Sarah the first time until he and Curtis tried it before Thanksgiving was around six to eight weeks. When Eddie decided to subcontract the hit, he told Fred that that is what he was going to do, and Fred approved it. Eddie hired Curtis for $5,000, which meant he made $20,000 from what Fred paid and whatever split he would have gotten from the insurance money. So for all of Eddie's claims that he was hesitant to be a part of this, he sure did make it so that he made a huge profit from it. But bringing Curtis in was their downfall because he confessed so quickly and so easily. And now Eddie was set up to take the fall, so he confessed, implicating Fred as the mastermind. But this was not the only crime Eddie implicated Fred in. He also confessed and informed about a number of corruption-related crimes— things having to do with moving drugs, money laundering, racketeering, things that are all federal charges. And Eddie told his story to the federal grand jury, who in August 1993 indicted Fred on a number of charges related to his business dealings, but also murder for hire for the death of his wife. So charges can only be tried at the same time if they are connected. So the federal government was connecting the murder for hire to all of these other crimes like money laundering and racketeering by saying that Sarah had found evidence that this was going on and that she was killed in part to shut her up about it. And if Fred didn't know she knew about these things, he would have known that they would come out in a divorce. Something Sarah was very likely going to pursue. A year after the indictment, Fred went on trial and he was found guilty on most of the charges, including the murder for hire. He was given four concurrent life sentences plus 32 years. Also in 1994, Eddie Lawrence pleaded guilty and this plea was part of the deal he made. As the middleman between Fred and the gunman, his testimony was needed to prove that murder for hire charge. And as a business partner of Fred's, his testimony was very important for proving all the other charges. Eddie's guilty pleas were in exchange for a lighter sentence. Fred did appeal the federal conviction and it was denied, so he was shipped off to spend the rest of his life in a federal prison. But the state of Georgia, still had jurisdiction to bring capital murder charges against Fred. And before you ask if that's double jeopardy to try Fred twice for the same crime, we have another legal concept at play here called dual sovereignty. It is the only exception to double jeopardy in the United States. The most famous case we have here is the case of Tim Hennis, Tim Henness was acquitted in state court of a triple murder. Years later, when DNA testing linked him to the scene, he could not be tried again by the state he had been acquitted. Except, Tim was active military at the time of the murders, so the military courts did have jurisdiction over him. Tim Henness was tried, convicted, and sent to death row. Dual sovereignty means that you can be charged for the same crime in both state and federal courts if the crime you committed violated the laws of both. It does not come up often, particularly when someone has been found guilty and given four life sentences. Why would the state spend the time and the money trying to convict someone who's going to die in prison for that crime anyway? Two words. Death penalty. The DA in Georgia wanted Fred Tokars on death row. So in late January 1997, Fred stood trial once again for the murder of his wife, and Eddie was once again the star witness. Curtis Rower did not testify, largely because his case wasn't over yet. He had been convicted at trial of a number of the charges related to what happened that night like kidnapping. But a lone juror voted not guilty on the murder charge, possibly because they believed Curtis's story about Eddie grabbing the gun, or it was at least enough reasonable doubt. So a mistrial was declared on the murder charge. Curtis went to prison for the other charges and the state intended to retry him on the murder charge in May 1997 after Fred's trial was over they were also pursuing the death penalty in Curtis's case so Curtis is not going to jeopardize his case to testify in Fred's Fred's trial didn't include any bombshells we haven't already covered Eddie's testimony was straightforward it was detailed he came across as credible But the defense did point out Eddie's plea deal and said, there's your motive to lie. In exchange for his testimony against Fred in both the state and federal trials, Eddie pleaded guilty to the state murder charge and the federal racketeering charges. In the federal case, he got 12 and a half years, and the state sentence was life with the possibility of parole. The district attorney said that in this deal, they wouldn't endorse or fight the parole. They would just stay out of it and leave it to the parole board. The defense called this a sweetheart deal. The other two people in the conspiracy were facing the death penalty, and Eddie could have been out on parole in 15 years. Who wouldn't trade a death sentence for 15 years? but we are going to get into the reality of Eddie's sentence later. Fred's defense at trial, simply put, was Eddie's lying, Fred had no motive to kill his wife, and things were fine between them. This jury didn't buy it any more than the federal jury did, and in March 1997, they convicted Fred of murder again. At sentencing, the jury did find that the state proved a number of aggravating factors, all necessary for the death penalty. But even if a jury finds aggravating factors, they still don't have to give the death penalty. And in this case, they did not. Fred got life without parole. Again, he now had five life sentences. So all of that and all of the expense of a trial just to end up where they started. A month after Fred was convicted, again, Curtis Rower made a deal with the state. In order to avoid the death penalty, he pleaded guilty and got a life without parole sentence. This plea deal was accepted by the state in part because Curtis had several mitigating factors that may have spared him the death penalty in the end anyway. Things like severe childhood abuse and mental illness. As for Eddie Lawrence, he did not get out of jail in 15 years like he had hoped. Not even close. And it may be because of something he did after he pleaded guilty that some have called a stunt. Shortly after Fred's trial, Eddie said he wanted to rescind his guilty plea. He changed his story. He claimed he lied at Fred's trial and basically wanted a do-over. He dragged the whole thing through an evidentiary hearing where he lost. And this attempt to rescind his guilty plea and throw Fred Tokar's case into chaos really eliminated any goodwill he had gained when he testified. While Eddie was in federal prison, he was in protective custody because there was an early fear that Fred may take a hit out on him. In 2010, Eddie was paroled from federal custody and delivered right to the state of Georgia to serve his life sentence there. It wasn't long before he was eligible for parole. However, in the years since Eddie's initial deal, the Georgia Parole Board became less and less likely to provide early release. According to the Georgia Department of Corrections, all of Eddie Lawrence's applications for parole have been denied, and Eddie Lawrence, hoping to be out in 15 years, is still in prison nearly 29 years after his initial arrest. As for Fred Tokars, he spent a lot of his time in protective custody as well, just as Eddie did, because Fred had become a jailhouse informant. It happened due to the circumstances of who Fred was before prison and why he was there. The other inmates knew he was a lawyer and had at one time worked as a part-time judge. They knew he had the legal know-how to help them with their cases and their appeals, but they also knew... Fred never testified against his co-conspirators or against his co-defendants in any of the trials, the murder of his wife, the racketeering, drug money laundering case, he had kept his mouth shut through all of it. Even more than that, the primary motive presented in the federal case was that Sarah was murdered to keep her from exposing Fred's illegal dealings to the authorities. So Fred was a guy with a legal background who didn't rat people out and would literally kill someone to keep them from informing. So Fred was trusted and inmates told him things, as in full-on verifiable confessions. Fred's information helped solve six murders, but it also put a target on his back. In exchange for his information, all it appears Fred got was his location hidden in a private cell. Fred's attorney said that he had cooperated so that his sons would know he was capable of good, even though they had chosen, as adults, to not have any contact with him. Fred developed a degenerative disease that left him wheelchair-bound. His attorney tried to get him some type of medical release, leveraging the help he had provided in those other cases. But the opposition to it was great, and Fred Tokars died in prison in May 2020 at the age of 67. A month before Fred's death, Michael Tokars, Sarah's younger son, died at the age of 31 from a pulmonary embolism while in California. Struggling with PTSD from his mother's murder, Michael had driven across the country to start fresh with not much of a plan. At 6'4 and cramped in his car, he developed blood clots behind his knees. Though he initially showed signs of improvement at the hospital, part of the blood clot broke off and traveled to his lungs. His body was returned home, and he was buried with his mother and his grandparents, being remembered in memorials as yet another victim of Fred Tokars. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crime Lines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after-show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crime Lines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crime And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for.